Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome back to LawPod. My name is Emer Smith and I'm a master's student in the School of Law. Here at LawPod, we really want to bring you exciting and topical conversations and guests that can share with us their stories and their insights on issues that get us thinking, talking and collaborating. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest to you as one of the leading scholars on the constitutional human rights and equality issues surrounding the future of Northern Ireland, Professor Colin Harvey. Here at Queen's, Colin is a Professor of Human Rights Law, a Fellow at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice, and he is also an Associate Fellow at the Institute of Irish Studies. Colin is the author of several academic books and papers, but what I personally love is that he makes human rights and equality accessible to everyone by having conversations about it. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very, very much, Emer. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here and just want to commend all the work that you're doing in law pod as well. I, I didn't recognise myself there a bit in your, your description, but really look forward to, to the conversation. No smoke without fire. Colin, the feeling that um, I get is that this area is as much a purpose for you as it is a profession. So just to kick us off, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your own story? Well, th- well thank you very much. I, I, again, really, it boils down to one one thing. I'm Professor of Human Rights Law at Queen's and I've worked in universities all my career, but I, I think ultimately you can't do human rights law in an academic context. You know, if you work on human rights, it's not something that sits on a bookshelf in the library. It's about how we can work together to think about changing the world for the better so that all those human rights legal standards that we talk about and teach about and research on, that they're actually meaningful as well in the real world. So I've really been very, very privileged throughout my academic career to work very closely with civil society organisations and human rights NGOs. And I've also served on the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission as well, was involved in the drafting the Bill of Rights advice to the British government. So so really it's, it's the sense that you can't just do human rights law in the abstract. It's about making those human rights standards meaningful in the real world and working and collaborating with others in order to achieve that objective both locally and globally. I think that's where it really has the potential to actually drive change and to to reach people when you meet them where they're at and you're bringing those conversations aside from the books and the articles, which are, of course, important. But I think people really respond to that. Just 
because we're talking about what's led you here, I guess, in terms of even the history of the island that we're on at the moment, often history here is it's disputed territory, maybe pivoting along ethno-religious lines. And we've often grown up with conflict and interpretations of what should be remembered, commemorated or forgotten. But what we do know and what isn't disputed is that people voted in favour of the Good Friday Agreement in both jurisdictions on this island. Could you maybe just touch a bit on the agreement itself, maybe dive into some of the key principles or its constitutional and rights-based promises, and maybe tell us why you think that it is actually important 22 years after that vote? Well, I think it's, it's a great question. It's a great time to be thinking about that right now. I suppose to put it in context, you know, on a personal basis, I'm giving away my, my age, but I'm 50 this year. You know, I was born in 1970, grew up in the 70s and 80s in, in Derry and, you know, experienced the, the conflict here firsthand. So I suppose, first of all, what's remarkable about the Good Friday Agreement is that it's a peace agreement and a political agreement. And although there have been many problems and challenges and nothing is ever perfect, it has brought us a measure of stability and peace in the society for which I think many people are really very grateful. I think the other thing to keep in mind about the Good Friday Agreement is that it was agreed and endorsed on the island of Ireland. In other words, people of the island were asked to endorse it and overwhelmingly did so in both parts of the island. So it carries that sense of robust democratic legitimacy. It's also very interesting that the agreement approached the problems of Northern Ireland in a multi-stranded way. You'll be aware of, you know, the three strands, strand one dealing with Northern Ireland, strand two dealing with the island of Ireland, strand three east-west. And so why that's important is it recognised that in order to reach some kind of agreement in this society, the canvas needed to be broadened. The canvas needed to embrace all the relationships around these islands in the sort of multi-stranded way that was done. Also, what the agreement does, I think, which is very significant, is that it recognises the fundamental ethno-national divide in this society around Britishness and Irishness. And ultimately, what it does is it leaves that for a decision of the people of this island, the right to self-determination that is recognised in the agreement, subject to the principle of consent linked to a majority of people in Northern Ireland. So really fascinating way to resolve the issue of self-determination by ultimately leaving the constitutional status of this society open and leaving it to a democratic decision. And I think that's a very interesting way of dealing with ethno-national conflict over self-determination, not just in Northern Ireland, but anywhere. And I suppose the other element that probably underlined today is that it's got a very strong focus on human rights and equality. And I think there's an element of the Good Friday Agreement that is that resonates very strongly with the global human rights movement. And that is the idea of never again, that the human rights abuses of the past, discrimination and equality will not be repeated. And if you like, it's a promise for the future. It's a promise that the future of this society will have the values of human rights and equality at its core. Now, I understand that in practical terms, much of that is still work in progress. There's a commitment in the agreement to incorporate the European Convention on Human Rights, for example, commitment of the British government, which is very much front and centre of the debate at the moment. Uh, 
The Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission was established via the agreement and there are other human rights and equality measures there, including responsibilities on the Irish government. There's a joint committee on human rights on the island of Ireland, which has been very important in the last few years in relation to Brexit. But I wonder how many people are really very aware of that. And also something that hasn't happened. The agreement anticipated that there would be a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, something that would send a strong signal here and to the world that there's genuinely been a new beginning for rights and equality. Now, that hasn't happened. Uh, The Commission provided its advice in 2008, but the, the process around that has been renewed this year and the debate is back on again. So I think the agreement, fundamentally important in terms of creating the architecture of peace here, has gained support on the island of Ireland and we've seen recently internationally at the European level as well. But I suppose I'd end just by underlining that the vision and the agreement remains work in progress. Many of the promises are there are yet to be realised. And I just urge people listening today to, to join the conversation to ensure that some of those unimplemented aspects are realised in practice because they'll make a difference to the lives of everyone here. Thanks very much, Colin. It's give us a great overview there. Just on the Bill of Rights, why is it increasingly essential that we would have a Bill of Rights? What would it give us that we don't have? Well, I think, again, just to put it in context, the agreement, you know, my view is the agreement did anticipate a Bill of Rights for this society. The Human Rights Commission submitted its advice on the 10th of December 2008. And I think the idea was that we would have a vision of human rights that built on the European Convention on Human Rights and and went further. This year, the new decade, new approach document really confirmed an agreement to establish an ad hoc committee in the Assembly. So there's a Bill of Rights committee in the Assembly at the moment, and your, your listeners might be interested to know that they're actually running a consultation exercise as well now. So there's an opportunity to to join in. I think the last few years have emphasised for me that we have really, really missed the Bill of Rights here. You know, it would have made a difference. You know, what do you notice about the last number of years that many of the crises that the institutions have experienced here have been what? They've been crises around rights and equality and governance. And I think the absence of a Bill of Rights has been felt here and would have made a difference. It would have made a difference this year, for example, to the debate around the response to the global pandemic. It's interesting to note, for example, that the Human Rights Commission in 2008 included a right to to health in their advice about a Bill of Rights. So I think it would have made a difference. I think it's sorely and badly missed. And I think we need to just really here finish the job in the next few years and ensure there's a the sort of new beginning to human rights and equality that's promised and the agreement is realised. And I think you'll know and your listeners will know that that's all been underlined a hundred times over in the last few years around the B word, Brexit. You know, So I think it's time to revisit the Bill of Rights conversation here. Absolutely. It's good to see some movement on that, for sure. Um, the B word. So we'll come back around to that. When the UK as a whole voted to leave, sort of raised a lot of questions and uncertainty for the UK. And I think probably nowhere more, was it more acutely felt than here in Northern Ireland? We voted to remain by a majority of 55.8%. So we saw maybe a new identity difference emerge here. 
that of remain and that of leave. We're hearing a lot about trade and we all know that that's obviously important. But I guess that we know in Northern Ireland also, as do many other places, that borders are infused with cultural and identity meanings. You'd recently said there that Brexit itself is intrinsically constitutional. Could you expand on what you mean by intrinsically constitutional? Well, again, it's a great Great question. I've spent a lot of time in the last few years, like a number of people, reflecting on the consequences of Brexit for the society, including the research project that is involved in Brexit Law NI. And ultimately, I've come to the conclusion that, that we have to acknowledge and accept that, you know, trying to pretend that we can have a conversation around Brexit about widgets, let's say, or about <laughs> tariffs and trade, and pretend that there aren't bigger constitutional issues in play, I think isn't a wise way to go. I think we just have to acknowledge the fact that the decision to leave the European Union uh, to take that forward against the wishes of a majority of people in the society raises fundamental constitutional questions. It really undermines in a very significant way the work that was being done here around the Good Friday Agreement that places a division between British and Irish citizens. It almost symbolically repartitions the island of Ireland and all the sorts of debates that have revolved around that. And I suppose what it does is you know, it puts front and centre something that, you know, should be a normal part of the conversation here. That's the Good Friday Agreement, as I've you know, already mentioned, rests constitutional status here on consent. There's a right to self-determination provision set out there. And what Brexit does is it puts one bit of the island outside of the European Union and one bit of the island remains in the European Union. So it raises the obvious question to me that, and as the European Union has acknowledged in April 2017, you know, Northern Ireland can return to the European Union through the mechanism anticipated in the agreement. And you know what I've been saying in the last number of years is simply to point out that it would be utterly bizarre if we spent all our time talking about the movement of goods around the UK, talking about tariff, tariffs and trade, and we ignored, to use a cliche, you know, the elephant in the room which is the fact that people here can choose to return to the European Union. So I, I think we just have to honestly acknowledge the implications of Brexit for the Good Friday Agreement. I think we have to honestly acknowledge what it means constitutionally and what it means symbolically to remove Northern Ireland from the European Union without the consent of a majority of its people. And I think we need to have the conversation about all the implications of all that in an open and honest way, instead of pretending, right, that if we just talk about goods in a narrow way, if we simply talk about uh, tariffs and trade, if we simply talk about customs arrangements, people will pretend not to notice that there are wider constitutional issues in play. So that's in a very uh, long way of saying, I think we need to have the constitutional conversation, recognising that there are fundamentally different views about the approaches to it. Absolutely. Um, the border was sort of catapulted into the limelight, you know, as an unintended consequence of Brexit. And people became quite acutely aware then of what this actually means for Northern Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, to me, as what, what's, what's been striking in the last couple of years is that, you know, a lot of what we're saying, Emer, we are not sitting here making this up. You know, what's interesting is there seems to be a lack of awareness about what, what was in the agreement and what was legislated for, 
you know, in domestic law through the Northern Ireland Act, you know, the changes to the Irish constitution that emerged. And that in some ways, this should just be a rather boring, normal conversation here. And I suppose it's it's probably a bit revealing about the deeply divided nature of society we live in, that, that you know, in some senses, for many people, it isn't, you know, but I think we need to honestly and openly talk about that and address it. Because if, you know, I, I think what we've learned from here and this society in the past is that dialogue, open and honest dialogue, is the only credible, sustainable way forward. There's a, a real strength in being able to sort of have those conversations, but there's more to it than it being a conversation that's driven by historical sort of ties. I think it's very grounded in the present in that it's a way forward. We have the framework there. We have the Good Friday Agreement. We can actually take this forward and make Northern Ireland a better society for everybody. I think that's absolutely right. Right, you know, ultimately what we're talking about is, is is how we're going to share the island in the future, given the consequences of Brexit, and how we're going to share these islands in the future. I think that language, you know, people have different views about that language, but I think it's useful. And, you know, the reality is that we're going to have to share the space, but that Brexit opens up uh, new ways of thinking about how we talk about that. And the Good Friday Agreement provides a framework. So, you know... I think in life, it, it's 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 silly not to plan and prepare for all possible future options. And so a lot of discussion in the last few years has been really noticeable, has been around just responsibly managing the consequences of Brexit, trying to mitigate the worst effects of that here, you know, through, for example, the Irish Protocol, but also doing the doing your homework, you know, in terms of what might be coming next. What I think is really heartening and really great to see, to be honest, is young people engaging with the conversation. For example, I did a poll um, on my Instagram to try and just generate some debate to see where people were at or if there was even interest there um, in the conversation. I just asked, do you care about the constitutional future of the island? And 146 people, which was 95%, said yes. But then 41% of those who answered said that now is not the time to be talking about constitutional change. How can we encourage people to actually think along the lines of this is an important conversation to be having? Yeah, uh, the the technology point really in- interests me as well. T- talking about Instagram, Emer, you know, because this year for many of us, I've been on a very very steep tech learning curve, you know. So <laughs> I've as been, have uh, we all? <laughs> Zoom, Teams, <laughs> you know, Skype. I've, 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 I've even joined Twitter on March of this year. I'm not sure whether that was a, a sensible idea. I haven't it's a quite step gone. Up. <laughs> the Instagram is maybe the next step on the journey or not. I don't think the the, wor- the world is quite ready for that. For that, but but What's I think it probably yeah, it, it does raise you know just as we're doing this as a podcast, you know that there's an interesting question around how you actually reach people today and Absolutely. the reach of te- technology. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that done events in recent times, you know, we're just because, you know, there are all sorts of access issues around the internet and all of that, but this technology allows you to reach many, many more people than you would have done in a sort of dusty seminar room mm-hmm. at Queen's in the past. So I think that's important in terms of thinking about the technology we're using to engage people. I think the other thing is just that like what strikes me about, um, you know, going back to my age, my rather depressingly large age, <laughs> this, this Don't year, dwell. <laughs> but uh, it's just that so many, like I, I do a lot of work with ac- activists on the island, like people who are working on issues of, you know, 
climate justice, equality, rights, you know, who, who in a sense are already working. They're not working in siloed, you know, traditional discussions. They're thinking about, you know, gender equality on the island of Ireland. They're thinking about the fact that climate change doesn't care about the border. You know, they're thinking about, well, why are these human rights applicable here and and, and not here, you know? So I think what's really, really striking is that perhaps people are increasingly engaging in, in different categories. They're not following a siloed conversations of the past, but they're having conversations about creating a, a better world, a better island for the future across a range of areas that, that activists cooperate and in some senses ignoring the border. The border becomes irrelevant to those discussions because we want to think about how we're going to create a better space for the generation that's, that's going to be, be coming next. And I think that's in some ways a way to think about where this might all go next. We want, you know, maybe say, let me say something that maybe some people listening to this find problematic, but I think the divisions on this island have not been good for any of us on the island. And I think the conversation about how we share it in the future has to be anchored in equality, social justice, human rights, and climate justice, because the current arrangements, Emer, you know, don't work. You know, what's been clear in the last few years, this isn't working and we need to get better. But if we're going to get better, it has to be framed by some of the values that really a younger generation are active and working on to try and promote and achieve change. I think sometimes there can be definitely sort of a benefit in having less history and more future in it and that you do want all people in the conversation. You don't want to create a better future just for yourself and for nobody else. And, you know, yeah, I'll just sit over there with all my rights and I'm yeah. not that worried about yours. It's about yeah. everybody. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you make a brilliant point that is often, you know, needs to be underlined in the Bill of Rights conversation or the conversation about the Human Rights Act. You know, when we argue for these rights to be enshrined in law, we are ultimately thinking about other people first. You know, you're not, if we have a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, that's not a Bill of Rights for Colin Harvey. You know, <laughs> it's not a Bill of Rights, you know, for you or me. It's a Bill of Rights for everyone here. Uh, the clue to human rights has always been in the title. They, they will benefit everyone. And I think we need to you know, get back to just reminding people that, you know, the human rights culture that we want to build is not a culture of me, me, me. It's a culture in a sense about and for everyone who shares this space now and in the future. Yeah, I think we're quite special here and I think we have the potential to continue having this kind of conversation. I don't think there's anywhere quite like Northern Ireland in that respect. The people here are great. So for a lot of people, unity is a constitutional or a political goal. And as we've said there, we do want to see a society where human rights is stronger for everyone. And you can understand why people would be thinking, what's going to happen to my unionist identity if we have a United Ireland? What way can we frame that beyond it being a political goal? How could we better protect unionists in particular, so that we're not setting a precedent of winners and losers? Again, it's a great, great question. In terms of taking forward the discussion about this, first of all, I, I think it's important to underline that people are welcome to participate and encouraged to join these discussions. But equally, we have to respect the right of people not to engage as well. 
you know, and I think sometimes there's a sense in which there's an expectation of participation, but I think we also have to acknowledge that mutual respect involves acknowledging that, you know, particularly political unionism and unions and political parties maybe don't want to engage in a conversation about designing a a different constitutional arrangement and why would they and I need to respect that but I think it has to be a welcome open invitation to engage the second thing is look just again it's it's around the the agreement and the framework that we're currently operating in the agreement anticipates because the agreement hinges the future of this place on a democratic decision if you like it already anticipates that things might change you know, so there's the the values of the agreement around respect for culture and identity will flow into the conversation about the future, and you know the Irish state and the new arrangements that may emerge in Ireland will need to shape up and reflect that respect for British identity, for British unionist culture uh, in in Northern Ireland. I think there's sometimes people forget that much of the agreements, you know, the agreement carries forward unless it is, you know, amended or repealed or replaced, you know, by by whatever comes next. So those values around identity and culture in the agreement, about parity of esteem, about equality of treatment, you know, about recognition of the choice to be British or Irish or both, these things will all carry forward. Um, now, the fact that they're, they're often not fully realised now creates obviously a difficulty but I think that's no excuse for for not ensuring that these things are reflected in the future. So any new arrangements in Ireland, for example, will need to fully respect the values of the agreement. The third thing really is just around human rights and equality. Remember that every gain made now in relation to human rights and equality uh, continues and carries forward into the conversation about the future. Um, so you know that's why that's one reason why I think it's important to realize the realize the unfinished business of uh, the Good Friday Agreement in relation to Bill of Rights and equality uh, and social justice. Why why do I say that? Because again, I think people um, maybe don't realize that there's a, a notion in the agreement, a notion of equivalence that you know that that Ireland must have an equivalent level of protection. Uh, you know, so in the event of constitutional change, what emerges in the new arrangement must be at least the same as what what is here now. So there's a sense in which every gain that is made now in relation to rights and equality levers that conversation about the new arrangements. And and just to finish, you know, for people like myself, and given what I've said throughout this interview. You know, I'm not interested in a constitutional conversation about the future that's about a tweak here and there. You know, I think we need to use this opportunity to have a more transformative discussion about new constitutional arrangements that reflect a commitment to do things differently in the next hundred years on this island, recognizing that the last hundred years, you know, particularly in the North, have been, uh, you know, disastrous for many people. So we have to learn those lessons, make the conversation transformative, make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, acknowledge on all sides on this island that we have hurt each other and to not do that again. And, you know, for me, one of the reasons why I work in in the area of human rights and equality is that's one way to give people the security that they need to participate effectively in the sort of society we have now and the sort of society we may have in the future. You know, Emer, also to keep in mind that it won't 
the agreement recognizes the relationships around these islands. And so whatever happens on this island, you know, there, there are going to have to be and there will be strong relationships around these islands, the institutions of the agreement, you know, the British Irish Council, the British Irish Intergovernmental Conference will go forward, you know, and will provide important forums for discussion and debate. And as you you know, and as the listeners know, you know, who knows what's going to happen in Scotland? The, the, the UK in many ways is is beginning to look in its present form as if it's past its sell-by date, if you know what I mean. And uh, so we're looking for leaders who are willing to step forward and discuss and negotiate where we're all going next. I guess, looking to the south, a few other things that were raised there were, well, look, it's fine us having this conversation in the north, but the south actually doesn't want this conversation. It would be too expensive. They don't want the danger of conflict. Um, they can't establish a citizens assembly because they wouldn't be an honest broker. What's your take on that uh, in terms of the south? I mean, what would the south have to gain from having this conversation? So everything in relation to... You know, the constitutional question here applies equally in relation to the, the Irish state. You'll know that the, the Irish constitution was amended, you know, and there's there's essentially a constitutional obligation, if you like, on the Irish state and the Irish government to do the necessary work of planning and preparing, in my view. I think I hear this argument, it, it often emerges, but all the polling evidence that's been done in the last few years still indicates a comfortable majority in the South for a United Ireland. And, you know, th- th- that that continues to, to be the case. So I think sometimes what worries me is there's a sort of Dublin 4 media bubble in the South, you know, but the, uh, Dublin 4 isn't Ireland. And uh, you see a consistent majority of people indicating support. That's not to say that there aren't uh, problems, but I think majority support, I, my own view remains, and people will disagree with me on this, that, that the big issue remains Northern Ireland, that those advocating change, its most formidable task will be persuading a majority of people in Northern Ireland to vote for change. I suppose the other element of that is, my, my own view is, and people will have a different view on this, is that We've been involved in a hundred-year exercise in, in avoiding each other on the island and constitutional avoidance. That hasn't worked. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work in the best interests of the North or the South. I think it's the strategic interest of both jurisdictions to have this conversation. If we're serious about creating a better future for everyone who shares the island, I, I do think... Brexit has also highlighted it's in the strategic interests of the Irish state to have this discussion as well. I think what's emerging with one bit of the island outside the EU, one bit in, even though there is the Irish protocol, I think is is problematic and risky for the Irish state. So I think increasingly there is a strategic interest if in geopolitical terms for the Irish state to engage. And the final point is, you know, a lot of the those advocating this discussion at the moment are putting an emphasis on management, planning, and preparing. But they're also putting an emphasis on civic engagement because, you know, ultimately the last thing this island needs is another elite-led, top-down 
constitutional process of change. What this island needs is a citizen-led conversation about the future. And that's why, for example, ideas around an all-island citizens' assembly, which have you know proven so useful in the South at taking, you know, if you might, the heat out of of, of issues and, and finding a resolution and a way forward constitutionally. An all island citizens assembly, for example, there's a there's a way to try and get people engaged in discussion this discussion on the practicalities of 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 some of this. Again, we just need to normalize the discussion. We need to do the work of planning and preparing for whatever outcome emerges. You know, it just seems to me negligent, irresponsible, but ultimately silly not to do your homework. I think the island is on a trajectory where the referendums anticipated in the agreement are going to happen at some point. And it just seems to me, given the lessons we've learned from the the Brexit shambles, that we do not want to repeat that on the island of Ireland, in my view. I guess in many ways with Brexit, people felt, hold on, I didn't actually realise what I was voting for. And that's not really the situation that you would want to be in again. You would like people to feel comfortable whatever way you want to vote or whatever your opinion. It's a brilliant point. I agree, agree entirely. My, you know, my view on this is that you need to do the preparation so that when people enter whatever voting booth virtual virtual or real they 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 are going into that they are clear what they're voting for or against that that the question is clear that the proposals for the future are clear that people know what they're agreeing with or disagreeing with and um, but we're only going to get to that point if we show the leadership if we take responsibility for doing the work, and I think at the moment there's a particular onus on those advocating, you know, a change outcome to do that work. But also, I th- I think those, for example, who want to make the case for remaining in the UK, really need to do the work as well as to why that is the more attractive option in the context of what's emerging in in a post Brexit context. You know, so I don't think there's room for complacency on any side of the argument. But it seems to me, as as Peter Robinson and others made clear, you know, it just seems to me like he's talked about border pole deniers. You know, and I think he's right. I think it just seems silly not to do the work of preparation now. You'd said there about the engagement that we were having on this island and that's in the strategic interest of the South. What about the EU? You'd written a paper on this as well with Mark Bassett. And in that paper, one of the main things really that stood out was that for Northern Ireland, if we were to rejoin the Republic, that would actually result in automatic rejoining of the EU. So, I mean, we know that the EU had a really profound role here in Northern Ireland, practically and symbolically in terms of the border. It gave us the space to maybe have some sort of a joint identity also. But do you think that Northern Ireland would have a better human rights framework as part of a unified Ireland in the EU than it did as part of the UK in the EU? If you want to think about it, uh, your listeners to to think about it, it, when we re-enter a, a time at which we can move around, you know, and we're not just living in a virtual world, the journey that we take from, let's say, 
Belfast or Derry to Dublin, you're you're taking a journey into the European Union, and when you return home that evening or the next day, you're leaving the European Union. So what Brexit has done is create a very fundamental divide on the island. Now the Irish Protocol does the work to try and mitigate some of that, and we've heard the international support around it. But to me, you know, your listeners and thinking about that, that is so stark when you think about what that means and, and the implications both symbolically and practically for the island. In twenty seventeen, April twenty seventeen, the European Union, you know, made clear that if there's there is a vote for for change here, we will automatically rejoin join the European Union. And I think that's a big statement. Think about the, the debates there's been in Scotland in terms of what might happen there in terms of a vote for independence and EU membership and a long-running discussion around that, that's already been taken off the table here. Also think about the fact that the protocol, there's provision for the Assembly uh, in 2024 to vote on the alignment provisions of the protocol in relation to the island. And, uh, you know, it seems to me just a bit weird, right? <laughs> this may just be me being slightly strange myself, but it just seems weird that we're going to have a situation here where in a few years' time, the Assembly will get to keep or not the alignment provisions. And yet we have the, if you want to use a milk analogy, you know, we have the full fat, rather than semi-skimmed, we have the full fat milk option of returning, but nobody <laughs> wants to talk about it, um, which seems to me unnerving. Uh, about the society that we live in, that people aren't prepared to say that. Um, and the final thing, you've talked about the future. I think many people, and it's clear in discussions that, that, that I've been having, must, you know, many people are simply thinking that for the sorts of values that we're talking about in the future, you know, Ireland's not ideal, not perfect. You know, what's happening on this island isn't ideal or perfect. Uh, and there are fundamental flaws. But that they look at Brexit Britain, they look at the hostile environment policies, they look at what people are talking about in terms of human rights and equality, and they're worried and concerned. And I suppose ultimately the discussion is increasingly pivoting around the idea that we would all be better off on this island with new constitutional arrangements underpinned by the sorts of values that we've talked about and that many people are worried about following Boris and Co. off into the wilderness uh, with their, you know, yeah, and, <laughs> and, and antipathy to some of the values that we're that we're talking about. Um, so, yes, I think the conversation about constitutional change here, intriguingly, now becomes a different conversation about rejoining a transnational pluralist peace project that is not without its flaws, right? I've been a long-standing critic of aspects of the European Union, but it's a commitment to lifting your head and being engaged in the world, being engaged in the, the region that, 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 that we live in and being committed to, to fundamental values that have underpinned the peace process here. And I just think that changes the dynamic fundamentally about this conversation. But really end where I started my rather long answer here is that you know, the reason people want to think about sharing the island is that we don't want 
a future of shared misery on the island. They're engaged in it because they think we could share it better, we can do better. The last hundred years, particularly in Northern Ireland, have not been good mm. for people here and that we can do so much better. Uh, we can do so much better, so let's talk about it. Thanks very much for that. I actually think that for all the trials and tribulations, it's quite exciting to be alive at this time and to be able to be a part of something. Not and when you've just turned 50 this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, landmark. Um, <laughs> Like you've made it uh, on the yeah, Microsoft yeah. Teams, Zencaster, yeah. Instagrams next. Yeah. You're doing well. Okay, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, on talking about things, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just stepping into those spaces. I mean, you've done that at loads of events. And like I said at the beginning, one of the things that really um, got me interested in this conversation and really wanting to talk to other people about this conversation was hearing you speak about it. So you were criticised, I guess, for your contribution to the debate on Irish unity and your capacity as an academic. What role or responsibility do you think that academics have in using their experience, their voices or their platforms to contribute to this conversation? Well, it's, it's a great question and obviously I've been reflecting very deeply in the last while over over some of this. Look, my, my view on this is clear. Uh, professor, I, I'm, I'm, I'm paid to profess, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm professing about the area that, that I've worked in. I've, I've taught constitutional law for the last, you know, 25 years. Um, I, I I'm paid to profess, so I'm, I'm going to profess, if you like. I don't think that we should lock ourselves away in rooms in Queens and never engage with the wider world. I think we have a responsibility to engage in an accessible way, using whatever vehicles are available there, to communicate what are essentially often complex and difficult ideas and engage with people around them and to try and promote discussion and debate, even about difficult and what will be perceived as, as controversial issues. And I've always done that and I just will will keep doing it. There's no point being engaged in human rights and sitting in a library. Uh, engaged in human rights, I'm engaged in constitutionalism because ultimately I started off wanting to change the world and I still want to to, to do that. I suppose I've been you know, thinking a lot about this, it, just to put it in context, and like people will have seen some of the social media stuff, but you know, in the last couple of years, I've had political parties being engaged here at Queens about me. I've been called every expletive that I'm currently aware of on social media over the course of the last eighteen months, and I've had a variety of other th things happen to me, and it's had. I'll be very, very candid with LawPod today. I've, it's had professional consequences in terms of my, my work and career as well. And that would give anybody pause for thought. But I, I'm really very determined to keep on going. I think there's a responsibility which I feel weighs upon me very, very heavily to engage publicly in these discussions. But just to underline uh, in a boring way that 
everything we're talking about, Emer, today, we're not making this up. It's anchored in the Good Friday Agreement, a document that was endorsed on this island that's underpinned in international law, you know, bilateral agreement, British-Irish agreement. It's been legislated for domestically in the Northern Ireland Act and in the Irish Constitution. Uh, people may not be aware of much of that, and th I think that needs to be addressed. But what's been really striking to me, even in the language that we're using today and, and using publicly, is that you know I've tried to be careful in talking about preparing and planning and managing responsibly a process of change that is anticipated in those documents and that may be happening. And, and I think I have a responsibility, both as, as an academic, but as somebody who lives in this society and wants to participate in this society, is to stand up and to say that out loud. Sometimes people throw the kitchen sink and everything else at you, but you just dust yourself off and keep going. And if it gives anybody else on this society, on this island internationally, the courage to do the same. And I've had people sort of come up to me and say, you know, quietly, that has given them confidence to engage in this discussions. I think it's my responsibility to do that as an active participant in this society. I would encourage others to join in. And just finally, I'm going to, with LawPod today, just make a plea to people listening to this and people in politics in Northern Ireland, is that if you would like to talk to me, reach out. I am available on the variety of platforms that I mentioned <laughs> earlier, virtually at the moment to engage. D don't necessarily sit down and pen a letter to my boss about me. Come and talk to me. I will talk to anyone about the issues that we've discussed today. I want this to be an open and inclusive conversation. I think we have to plan for the future. And please, please, please join in, get in contact, and I'll sit down virtually and discuss and engage with you. Instagram to be confirmed. Colin, <laughs> I'm thanks. not going there. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. But <laughs> not ruling anything out. I'm not ruling anything out. <laughs> thanks a million, Colin. I think you've encouraged probably more people than we'll ever actually be able to tell you. I have a few quick fire questions, just one word or one sentence um, answers, just five questions. This is completely unfair. <laughs> I is, know, I know, unheard, yeah. but those yeah, are the best answers. Yeah, yeah. What does Northern Ireland need more of? One word or one sentence. Northern Ireland needs a Bill of Rights. Great. What's something that you once took for granted that you value now? That's a good question. I, I don't know. In terms of in the current global health pandemic, you know, has made us made it made us all reflect about everything we taken for granted, I suppose, at the moment, just basic human contact. What's the one question that you ask yourself the most? Do I want to keep on doing this? <laughs> <laughs> what is the best advice you've ever received, heard or given? Stay in your own track. That's great. What I, what I mean by that is, look, there's all sorts of things in life that will knock you off your path. Uh, don't be comparing yourself to other people. You know, don't get distracted know what your purpose is, know what your path is, 
I do a lot of running. Done a few marathons in the last few years. Never thought I'd do that. Uh, just stay in your own track. Great advice. And I try to follow it. Brilliant. Thank you. Lastly, then, as this is law pod, um, if you had to create a law that everyone else in the world had to follow, what would it be? I think res- respect for the international human rights framework in its entirety to be meaningful in the lives of everyone on our shared planet, you know, would be ideal, you know. So the rule would be, you know, practical implementation and enforcement in a meaningful way of the international human rights framework to make a meaningful difference to the lives of everyone on our shared planet. Amazing. Colin, thanks a million for giving us your time today. Thank you. I know that I've really enjoyed the conversation i hope you have as well um, and i know that our listeners will also really enjoy it too thank you Emer. thank you very much you have been listening to law pod an informed tech on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at queen's university belfast law pod is funded by the queen's university law school please follow us on twitter and instagram at qub law pod for more information you can also visit our website lawpod.org and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This was LawPod.